0: Hey Shannon, how are you?
1: Pretty good. I'm actually feeling really good. Oh, yeah. I'm very proud of myself.
0: <laughs> what did you do?
1: Um, I installed a kitchen light and I didn't electrocute myself. <laughs> and I'm very I'm very proud of myself. And the whole time I thought, you know, Lehman and that guy Frank that <laughs> helped me fix stuff said, "Just play with stuff. It's okay."
0: <laughs> yeah 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 so did you have to get up in your attic and do all that that oh fun-ish? no
1: it wasn't that exciting <laughs> oh
0: okay i was uh, saying, getting up in your attic seems like a bad idea this time of year
1: oh god yeah um we actually don't have attic space right there so uh no that would have been oh yeah it's not wonderful i did get up in the attic yesterday for something entirely different and it was not wonderful um but yeah i bought this new light because we had needed a new light and i got it and My husband turned off the light, and he scotch-taped it down and said, go for it.
0: Lock out, tag out like a boss. Yep.
1: (laughs) And I was like, can you hold this? He's like, no, you got it. It's fine. (laughs) So, yeah. There you go. I'm a a master electrician now, is my point. Oh, boy. Uh, I use those little twisty things with the wires. Super fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems I mean, like black magic.
0: Well, it's... Yeah. A- AC, you know, there's only a couple wires. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Most of the time.
1: <laughs> I know. I was like, do I lick my fingers and touch these to see, make sure they're off? And he's like, I mean, you can. <laughs> to which he responded, which I assumed you have the similar the similar story. And he's like, no, no, I know this electrician gives his name who totally does that all the time. <laughs> like, okay.
0: So, I've got the little the little chicken stick that beeps if the yeah, wire's hot. We
1: got that too. But yes. And
0: then before I uh I touch it, I always just like rake it against the junction box which should be mm-hmm. grounded. Mhm. Yeah. Because okay. if it is still hot for any reason, then it sparks and trips the breaker and then then it's safe. <laughs> then
1: then you're good. <laughs> and you don't and the bonus you don't have to walk and turn off the breaker by yourself.
0: <laughs> Reminds me of uh Oh, Dan from I think it was Dan from Rheingold Heavy that posted on twitter a couple years ago he had cut the end of an extension cord off and wire nutted the two wires uh, wire nutted the wires together <laughs> uh, and yes. labeled it breaker finder
1: oh, oh, oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty awesome <laughs>
0: not recommended by the way
1: uh no <laughs> no not at all yeah it was a i used an electric chainsaw to chainsaw up a lot of my um my storm damage from this past weekend which was significant so that was fun too
0: yeah norman mesonet had almost 70 was it 78 mile an hour 78 gust
1: speed mile an hour gusts yeah it was it we had a microburst several years ago that i just happened to be like staring out the window of course and witnessed but besides that microburst it's the strongest i've ever seen the wind blow here at our house it was insanity it was so loud, and it was so prolonged. Like, it wasn't, it didn't feel like just gust. It was incredible. So, yeah, we lost power basically most of the weekend because we had storms from Friday morning on. And, um, yeah, we didn't get power back till Tuesday, so. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. We have a tiny generator that would run our refrigerator, so the refrigerator was fine, and we had a little bitty fan hooked up to <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we had to cave and go to a hotel because it was 92 degrees in our bedrooms. And so.
0: That's very hard to sleep in.
1: It was a little rough. Yeah, I know. Everybody's like, but you camp all the time. And it's like, man, the worst camping I've ever done was in Moab. And it's because at 2 a.m. it was 93. And it was the hottest night I've ever spent. It was so gross. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what it felt like. But, uh, I.
0: I also remember camping in Moab, and like I had a mesh tent and was laying, you know, almost (laughs) with nothing on. Exactly. Inside this mesh tent and being like, please, like any moving air, (laughs) any.
1: (laughs) At all. Actually, we were there the same summer. That was, you visited us on our road trip. So that's hilarious. So we were like a week behind you going to Moab.
0: Yeah, we, we didn't meet in Moab. I don't remember where we no, met. No, we,
1: we met in Durango.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's super funny. Yeah, that was disgusting. The girl that camped next to us, she, like, peaced out at about 1230, and then she came back the next morning, and she was like, oh, yeah, I went and sat in the parking lot, and I just turned on my car every, you know, 30 minutes, and then I'd turn it off and fall asleep, and then when I woke up because it was too hot, i just turn on the A.C. again. <laughs> yeah, that's what we should have done, <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was one of those, like, I went and showered at, you know, 10 p.m. or something. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was done with the shower (laughs) and I walked back to my tent, I was like, why did I just do that? Exactly. (laughs) I'm where I was before I started.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, I want to say, like, at least it was a dry heat. Um, But here this weekend, I mean, it was like 80,000% humidity. That was the true actual reading, (laughs) 80,000%.
0: This so, sucks. we got a significant amount of uh, rain and wind also over the weekend.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And my yard is still wet.
1: This is crazy.
0: And this... we're recording this on Wednesday. That's unbelievable.
1: <laughs> God, it feels like a jungle this year. Like, absolutely. Just a jungle. I can't. Oh, yeah. I feel like such an old person when I start saying stuff like, you guys remember back in 2011? <laughs> right And, and, and yeah that was our super super hot year and then was it 2014 whenever we had all the rain I don't know but yeah this one's gonna go down for sure it's just so humid so much more so than normal and
0: and for us I mean this is way off topic but for us it's also very snaky
1: uh yeah so I read that I actually haven't seen as many snakes around my yard as I would have expected um based on the weather right now
0: we parked my wife's car for maybe an hour, a little more, and uh, came out, and there was a snake coiled up inside the, the hubcap. What? Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Yeah, when it's wet, it just drives the snakes everywhere. It's really interesting, so.
0: And we uh-huh. found one that was trying to get in our garage and had gotten trapped by the garage door by happenstance.
1: <gasps> oh, uh, poor, poor little guy
0: yeah but no we've got our uh, thanks to some some friends down the road uh, from us but we have our our little snake catching pole (laughs) with the gripper on the end now
1: (laughs) oh that's awesome yeah there's been two snakes inside my house it was as cool and calm and collected around wildlife as i'd like to be i was traumatized (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah i mean you you more have the rattlesnake problem we more have the copperhead problem
1: yeah yeah that's true it's so not wet around here usually there are copperheads but not right in our yard yeah we've had a couple of hognose this year those are always weird looking snakes but yeah that's about it so um.
0: well you know thanks for joining us on uh, yes (laughs) wildlife and
1: outdoors (laughs) we talked about the weather a little bit
0: Right. So (laughs) I I thought it would be kind of fun. We were talking about, you know, what do we want to do this week? And we we like talking about history of science. Yes. And this is one of those things that is going to be told in our kids' general geology classes. Uh, I think.
1: See, and this is real weird to me, but you're going to tell me why it's so important.
0: So... (laughs) We know that the magnetic poles reverse every so often because when they were looking for submarines during World War II by dragging magnetometers behind ships all over the ocean, they saw these magnetic banding patterns. And that was one of the things that really started to seal the fate of plate tectonics. Mm hmm. Yep. So, as many great scientific discoveries are, it was a result of massive money poured into the Defense Department. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um. Every intro geology class tells that story. Yes.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was. Yeah. It was the El Tannen was the ship that did a lot of that work. Oh. Okay. Uh. So. You may remember back in. Back in 2014, which Shannon <laughs> thinks was one of the wetter years. Uh, <laughs> there was a Malaysian Airlines flight, flight 370. That disappeared in the Indian Ocean and is still never been located.
1: Oh, yeah. the stuff's creepy. And it spawned all kinds of conspiracy theories and everything else. But there's actually a lot of science that has come out of the search for this, too. We've actually did a... Didn't we do a show about black boxes and stuff?
0: I, th- I think that? we did talk about black boxes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I, I even did... Uh, I was taking an inversion theory class at the time. And my project for that inversion theory class was writing ways to optimize sonobuoy network placement for optimal oh. location of black boxes and coming there up with error ellipses from them and all that.
1: There you go. Mm-hmm. But And,
0: I mean, it wasn't anything that fancy, don't get me wrong, but it was a cool <laughs> class project.
1: Yes. And it's like, but, I mean, there's, we still need help with this, obviously, right, because we haven't located it but there's some neat science that has come out of trying to locate it.
0: And what blew my mind is, so they, they were dragging the, the easiest way. The black boxes are gone after 30 to 40 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the easiest way to try to find this now is by taking detailed bathymetry. So how far is it below the hull of a ship to what's on the bottom? Okay. And you start looking for things that look like airplane parts.
1: Right, so something irregular.
0: Right, something, I mean, and you can see the shape. Uh, If you watched those, like, remember Sea Hunters with Clive Klessler? Oh. Uh.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm, as you cannot tell from that snorting, I'm rolling my eyes at the ridiculously sexist books this man writes, but whatever, I get it, it's a genre thing, blah, blah, blah.
0: (laughs) Well, so, they're, when they were looking for wrecks of various ships, they use this thing called sc- side-scan sonar, right? which is a little sonar device. It's uh, They call it a fish. It, it looks like a little bitty cruise missile. Mm-hmm. Uh, you toss it off the side of your boat, you drag it, and it sweeps a sonar beam and gives you a map of what's on the bottom. And you could even see, uh, like I remember watching this as a kid, and they found a paddle wheel steamer. And like the sonar was high detail <gasps> oh. enough, you could see the paddle wheel. Wow. On like th- there was no doubt of what you were looking at.
1: That's super cool. What kind of depths though?
0: Uh, not super. Mm-hmm. And and you you fly the fish at an altitude, so you know you can say, well, I think the wreck is approximately at depth X. You know the water's at depth X here. I want to fly twenty meters above the bottom.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, and then when I was working on the the NOAA scallop expedition boat we had a bathymetry plotter on the bridge and okay. after I got off shift I would go up there and sit with whoever was the the duty officer and watch for a while just because it was really cool to see what came across the screen
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you didn't really always know what it was
1: <laughs> uh, yeah we um, we used to at field camp we would do a week in Louisiana instead of going for a week Um, tour around the mountains and we had a little sonar and we used to stay at LUMCON which is a facility a university, Louisiana University's consortium um, off of HOMA, so way down south and they would take us through the channels and stuff because our little sonar it was not wonderful Um, but it was really cool and they would find stuff that they'd be like I don't know what this is, let's go back over this again It was neat.
0: Yeah, and then you can look on the charts, and you can say, oh, well, that was probably this wreck.
1: Yes, yeah, ours wasn't that cool. But but you could see the dredging channels, and that was really neat, because they would dredge in certain patterns, and you could see it out there. So that was cool.
0: So that's the best way to look, and they use this technique called multi-beam sonar, which is, think of it as phased array radar for bathymetry.
1: Right. Makes sense.
0: And the, uh, the Fugro Equator is the ship that's been doing a lot of mapping on this. That and th- there were two others. But they mapped for two years trying to find this airplane. <sighs> Three ships mapped for two years.
1: That's unbelievable. Is this at the Malaysian government's expense? Who's doing this?
0: I could not find that out.
1: Hmm. hmm.
0: But I would love to know because I mean, think of the operating cost.
1: Oh yeah, this seems unbelievable. Just you, unbelievable.
0: Right. So you've got these ships. They're out there for two years, and even with three ships in two years, you're mapping a very small area.
1: Mm-hmm. It's just crazy so. to me that the ocean's that big. Like I just. I don't. I don't get out to the ocean much. You know what I mean? And so it's like my place doesn't involve the vastness that is the ocean. Like three ships in two years plus the four years before that we've been looking for this thing and we can't find it.
0: I, yeah. I mean, when we were doing the scallop survey, like we weren't even that far out. We, we were out on George's Bank.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, it, it was like, okay, well, if, if something terrible happened and we needed to sail for shore, it's four 24-hour days of sailing.
1: Huh.
0: Like, <laughs> That's
1: crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't that far out.
0: And we weren't that, I mean, this, where this flight went down is almost the furthest you can be from land.
1: That's crazy. To uh, think. Uh, and I also I mean, think of the Indian Ocean being tiny. Which is ridiculous. I understand that statement, but right. you but, know what I mean? I'm like, oh, well, that's the tiniest of the oceans.
0: <laughs> I want to say, because uh, I, I was following this real close when it happened. I want to say it took something like 10 days to steam to the search area.
1: Wow. Yeah. Uh, and a... and it, may
0: have, it may have been a little bit more than that, but I remember because everybody's saying, well, why can't we find it? Why can't we find it? It's like, well, because it's going to take more than half the time that the black boxes are active to even get a search ship there.
1: Yeah, and think about like the currents and everything else that's going on and acting on all of that debris during that time. Right. So
0: hmm. So they're out there, they're scanning for this airplane. They didn't find it. Uh they have found some other interesting stuff, like other than scientific things. It's like, Oh well that's that's where that ship ended up, you know. Or, oh <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: Took these twelve other ships that we've been missing off of our off of our list.
0: Right. Uh, and I mean, there have been other airline airliners that have been missing for
1: years right. and years. Yes. And are still uh, missing. Mm-hmm.
0: And some get found randomly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in this case, they started looking at this multi beam sonar data. And to me, it's almost like they saw the magnetic stripes that the L Tannin saw. They were like, what uh-huh. is this?
1: Uh huh. Yes. But these stripes, I mean, oh gosh. There's so much weird geophysics happening here, and so much weird like dynamic processes that they've used to explain this. Um, So the stripes aren't like topographic stripes, right? Are they in, oh, this is so weird. Um, How did they actually, did they have to process this stuff to see them? They did, right?
0: Right, so normally when you're looking at bathymetry, you just want to know how far is it to whatever below me, and you go on. Right, exactly. But multi-beams, so you've got that
1: outline, yeah.
0: Right, but multi-beams, you save all this data. It's like doing a seismic survey. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saving some time retrievals, and you can process it. Here, in this section of the Indian Ocean, the, the sediment layer on top of the oceanic crust is actually pretty thin. Mm-hmm. So... Though these are sound waves and they attenuate very quickly in uh, rock because they're they're high frequency uh, or even sediment, the sediment's thin enough that we're actually able to do pretty much a seismic survey just pointing down. Okay. And you can find the interface between the sediment and the oceanic crust.
1: Okay. This is one of the places where the oceanic crust is like... Well, I guess it is because of this thin sediment layer. Because isn't there some kind of thing that people are trying to like actually drill into the mantle and they're talking about doing it out here in the Indian Ocean?
0: Right, yeah. The, the Not only the sediment's thin, but the actual crust is pretty Crest thin, is too. Crust is thin,
1: too. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Sorry, that's an aside. But I just wondered if this was in that same area.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you, you've got three and a half kilometers of water. And then you've got up to about a half kilometer of sediment.
1: Okay. Which is on top of.
0: Which is not much. Yeah. I mean it okay, it's a lot if you were buried under it, but it's not (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of sediment on the ocean floor, this is not much.
0: (laughs) Right. And I would have expected and they said, Well, we didn't totally expect, you know, to see perfectly flat crust and I would have expected that.
1: Yes, I wondered about that statement, too. They're like, of course, that's preposterous. Well, okay, yeah, I, would see, I could see that you would expect some fluctuations, just because we know that spreading rates change over time. But to see not only a fluctuation, but a signal, which is what happened.
0: Right, so that would surprise me. I mean, yeah, sure, I don't expect to see something that's yeah, dead yeah. flat. But yeah, I would but have expected mostly, to see something right? comparable to Kansas.
1: Yes, which is hate mail to Lehman at. <laughs> right. Yes, definitely
0: use the wrong email address there. Uh, <laughs> so I would have expected that, and okay, maybe you've got some little, I don't know, striations or weird cooling pad. Okay, fine. Yeah. But instead, they see this sinusoidal pattern, these ripples that have a length. And I thought this was actually kind of poor wording in the, the EOS article. Uh,
1: uh-huh, yes.
0: Um, so it says, which are more than 100 kilometers long and repeat every 10 to 14 kilometers. Yeah. <laughs> which at first I had to double take. So 100 kilometers long being the transverse direction.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: and the 10 to 14 kilometers being in the direction of propagation. And the
1: propagation. Mm-hmm, yes. Also the figure... It's described very oddly, too, but whatever.
0: <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you yeah. see these sinusoidal things that are miles and miles in scale. Mm-hmm. And what's the first thing that you think of when you see something repeating that I mean, here the crust moves middle of the road uh, three and a half centimeters a year?
1: Which is crazy. That seems so long to me. Like, I mean, that seems like a very high amount.
0: Uh, so the, the thing I always tell people is y- you look at slow plate margins and fast plate margins, round numbers to keep in your shirt pocket, Yankee units, because that's where we are, mm-hmm. four to six inches a year. Okay. Uh, the That's hard to conceptualize, I think.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think so too.
0: That is almost the exact same range as the growth rate between your fingernails and your hair
1: yeah that's what i always tell everybody but still so every,
0: every time you clip your fingernails california moved about that much <laughs> kind of mind-blowing
1: uh, that's really funny
0: uh, so when i see things that are miles in scale tens of kilometers in scale and have that small of a rate my first thought's orbital
1: correct which is what everyone's first thought is um <laughs> when we're talking about those uh time scales but the when you compare those those rates to that amount of time they actually don't match up with any of these milankovitch cycles
0: right because so, oh good oh well yeah i mean so milankovitch cycles you're looking at Twenty odd thousand years and harmonics thereof.
1: Right. Yeah. Twenty-two, forty-one ish, and a hundred ish thousand. No,
0: so, n- you couldn't see, but I, I was shaking my hand side to side I said, "and harmonics thereof." <laughs> 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 they're, they're close. <laughs> they're, they're they're orbital parameter close. Uh, uh.
1: Oh, it's not an exact science. Um, right. So when we talk about Milankovitch cycles, you know, we're talking about it in relation to, um, you know, climate stuff, right? Ice ages, things like that. Right. Interglacials, glacials, large scale ice ages. Um, and so maybe that had something to do with it, because that's one of the big things that you can change sea level with. But these timescales are 300,000 to 400,000 years right
0: right with the pattern being continuous for 12 million years
1: right so that doesn't add up to that yet not at all yeah Mm -hmm. so where does it come from
0: right and okay so we can probably rule out on that time cycle I don't even think you can lean on isostatic anything no. <laughs> over that long of a time cycle. No,
1: not at all. No. Mm-mm.
0: So it, it's almost got to be something about the production rate.
1: Which, how much do we really know about mantle dynamics in general? It seems to me everything we think we know it keeps getting disproven almost completely.
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't know much about the mantle. I mean,
1: we didn't know much about it anyway. Plate tectonics is new, everyone, right? So, you know. Right.
0: I mean, plate tectonics is still a pretty new idea. The mantle is weird because a lot of... And it still drives me nuts how many folks are taught that it's liquid.
1: Yeah. I say it's peanut butter. Yeah. Or I say ice cream, which gets real confusing because then they're like, but it's really hot. So I like peanut butter better.
0: Yeah, it's... um. I mean, if you were on really confusing, you'd say it's plasticky and viscoelastic.
1: Ah, yeah. Well, I say that too. Uh,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, for me, that completely clears it up in my mind. No. Uh, yeah,
1: I know. That's it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah, that's a, brittle and ductile people. Yes.
0: Yeah. So you've got these. Well, the aptly named brittle ductile transition zone.
1: Mm, how about that? Right. Uh, <laughs>
0: but but you've got this flowy solid.
1: Yeah, which is still hard for me to imagine because does that mean every part of it is peanut buttery or is some of it the oil from the peanuts and some of it is actual peanuts? Like That how, is much
0: more likely, I think.
1: I think it is too, but man, I don't think of it that way. You know what I mean? But that's probably what it is.
0: Well, and at those temperatures and pressures, you've got all kinds of weird mineralogies happening. Super you've got weird stuff. You, You've got giant conglomerations of minerals that I'm sure are there that have different melting points. So you're gonna have some mm-hmm. chunky
1: Exactly. So, yeah. Maybe I'll okay. So this fall I'll talk about it like chunky peanut butter, natural peanut butter where the oil separates. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm glad we can get this um yeah, more tuned in.
0: <laughs> that they can be an assignment. Is oh there you go. Oh Shannon. A peanut butter <laughs> and jelly sandwich.
1: Oh no
0: you've got the crust which has an extra layer of fun because bread has crust oh. and and you've got your brittle ductile transition with the peanut butter and then you've got the jelly
1: Mm-hmm. yeah there you go wow just stick a bb in it you got the whole earth
0: yeah <laughs> all right so what does any of this have to do with these waves and Malaysian Airlines flight 370. Okay.
1: I was hoping we could just skip that part because this is where it gets real weird.
0: <laughs> it is. And we don't... I, I don't think this is a fully developed idea yet.
1: hmm
0: Okay. So let's imagine you've got mantle material upwelling. This, this chunky peanut butter is being heated, maybe spot-heated from something underneath... And it's convecting up. It's, it is buoyant. It has cape. It is...
1: Oh, my gosh. It, 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 yeah. I'm so sorry, geologist, that he said that. <laughs> hey,
0: convective available potential energy. It's the same thing. It so, is the
1: same thing, and I say it every time I teach this part, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> yes. No, I mean, you may not have water loading necessarily, but, but beside the point. Uh,
1: but maybe. <laughs> go ahead. So
0: you've got this upwelling mantle peanut butter yes and as the pressure is removed from it this is to me is one of the most counterintuitive things in geology
1: (gasps) this is so hard to teach an intro yes
0: it melts because you're decompressing it
1: decompressional melting Uh, i just tell people everything is regulated by p and t and if you change p or t weird stuff can happen (laughs) like just believe that for a while and then maybe you'll understand decompressional <laughs> melting.
0: Well, and normally, you know, you think, well, okay, well, I, I compress a gas. I'm like, I turn my air compressor on, and the ga- compressed gas is hot. And right, when I yeah. spray it, the can gets cold. cold.
1: Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: We're not looking at the phase diagram for air.
1: Yeah. We're looking at it for peanut butter.
0: <laughs> right. And <laughs> some of these minerals behave in pretty weird ways, such that if you maintain a temperature and you slide left on the pressure axis... Mm -hmm. You go into the
1: melty
0: phase. You go into a a phase that is liquid. Mm
1: -hmm. Lever diagrams or lever diagrams, right? But I was taught by a British guy, so it's lever diagrams.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So you do this decompressional melting, and you get this fluid, which we would then call magma. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And eventually that makes it out of the mid-ocean ridge, squirts out, and becomes oceanic crust.
1: Okay, great.
0: So now imagine, and they've done some, they call them simple simulations, which
1: <laughs> I cannot
0: imagine how any simulation approaching this could be vaguely simple. I'm, I'm sure simple uh, means simple to a fluid dynamicist.
1: Exactly. <laughs> imagine
0: if you had various pockets that were melt-rich. Mm-hmm. And through a mechanism you could see them traveling think of it like uh, traveling upslope traveling up the highest gradient you know air moving along a frontal boundary or something you're you're going the way that thermodynamics dictates you have to right you're not just coming up in this nice even dispersion
1: right mm-hmm. you're, you're getting fo- directed you're f- by you're following your 80 <laughs>
0: Right, and, and you're following maybe underlying topography of a plate or you're following a, a temperature gradient or whatever. So these end up flowing into a lineation pattern. And you get these pockets that all come up, they all flow, they accelerate, make this bubble of crust, and then they're gone until the next round of pockets comes.
1: But, okay, how would you get cyclicity in this case, though?
0: Good question.
1: Like, I get that. And they call this stuff porosity waves, which also blows my mind. But, anyway, I'm sure we'll get to this. But, yeah, how do you create cyclicity? It would have to be, like, inherent to the convective cell.
0: So... The paper is not open access, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that accompanies this, but they have three mechanisms that they're talking about in the paper, which is melt pressure focusing, decompaction layers, and ridge suction.
1: Wow. That's a long time. Ridge suction. That seems like a long time scale for that, but okay.
0: That's also the least important. Okay. Um But these things are obvious, like the flow of this melt is obviously very sensitive to changes in porosity and permeability.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So my interpretation from the abstract is that, and looking at some of the figures, <laughs> is that you are when you have this massive upwelling of fluid, you're significantly modifying the porosity and permeability of the surrounding rock such that you're suppressing further flow after that until the crust moves on a little ways. And now you've got some more open porosity that you can, you can set this whole process up again.
1: It still seems like such a, but why that cyclicity? Like I get that, but also I don't understand the cyclicity of that. I
0: I don't either. I don't, well, I, I can see why it cycles. I just don't see the, time scale of the
1: cycling <gasps> right yes the specific yeah why you would get that cycling but i right. guess i mean why would you get any yeah
0: but maybe mm. like to me th- this sounds like there is probably a dimensionless ratio in here yeah. That something like the wavelength divided by the melt migration rate times time or something like it to me, there is some sort of dimensionless number in here that says, given the flow rate and given the rate that we're generating new porosity, this is the characteristic time scale that comes from this.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and we do
0: generate very slow.
1: <laughs> so, this is one of my questions to you that I'd written down, I mean, mentally, <laughs> was, you know, so I showed this picture, which is just an. It's, well, I make a joke that's probably inappropriate about how if you're under the influence of anything, this picture is quite intoxicating because it's a picture of a mantle plume and it looks like this giant jellyfish, right? Right. And it goes pretty fast. But I'm guessing that's not how fast that we're actually, these convective cells are moving. Do we have any idea of that?
0: I think vague ideas, but imagine you are trying. You know, we just said this is peanut butter rock. Yeah. Under intense pressure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How fast are you going to be able to squeeze liquid rock through that?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly.
0: Very, very not, slowly.
1: Not very fast.
0: I, I would say we're probably talking permeabilities, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude below what we normally think about. Yeah, maybe maybe even more, uh, and in in the paper you can see the the figures. Well, you can see small versions of the figures uh, on the the Science Direct website, and it looks like they've done some modeling that that does show a, a, a cyclic pattern. Mm-hmm. But you know you can always in models tweak.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You know you, you can tweak this this number to get you to this time scale or this number. So you'll always be able to find a solution that fits, but they were able to do that while keeping things in at least geologically feasible number ranges.
1: Right. Okay. I mean, which is probably a good start,
0: which is a good start. And so the reason I think this is important and I compare it to the L is we don't fully understand this yet, but now we know it's there. Mm hmm. Yeah. This could be one of the things that starts helping us understand mantle dynamics better. Like, this, is, this mm-hmm. is a fantastic natural laboratory to look at it. And we've got a 12 million year record to try to replicate.
1: Right. Yes. And because we virtually know nothing about it, any, anything we gather from this is, you know, spectacular. Exactly. Yeah. That's weird. That is super weird.
0: And it never, ever would have been found if we weren't looking for that plane. hmm
1: Exactly. And we because, I mean,
0: that's a huge expanse of ocean to map to see these. Things. You're not going to get this as one or two trawl lines. Uh,
1: uh, right, yeah, exactly. I mean, the same thing with the magnetic stripes. Yeah, you're exactly right. Which is the whole point of, you know, be open to whatever you find, because what you're looking for might not be the most important thing that comes out of what you're doing. Exactly, mm-hmm.
0: and you know, just keep your eyes open for weird stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe some of that stuff that you think is a problem in your data isn't a problem at all. Someone else's noise is another person's signal.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes <laughs> if you if you're filtering something out and you don't know what it is, you think twice before you filter it out.
1: <laughs> yeah. Figure figure that out. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. This was really yeah. interesting, and I will say that I saved like four different papers about porosity waves. So.
0: <laughs> so, and, and yeah, that would be a fun thing to talk about in more detail too.
1: If, if um, we were able to.
0: <laughs> the, you know, an example of don't filter your data. So mm-hmm. when I was working on developing that Arduino class,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the shield that you get has a light sensor on it. Okay. Yes. And I was playing with it at home and everything was happy. Like I could you know, hold my hand over it and see the light level go down. I even made a little theremin oh, like, my where you, you moved your hand and it changed the pitch of a tone.
1: Oh, beautiful.
0: I, I could not play the original series Star Trek theme on it. I That's tried desperately.
1: very disappointing.
0: Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, I had it all working. I even looked at a graph of the output of it to get an idea of what the ranges were. I'm like, okay, cool. So then I went to my shop to record that lesson. And lo and behold, <laughs> when I pulled up the graph, it was a sine wave.
1: No kidding.
0: Like a perfect sine wave with a period of a few seconds.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: So I was like, what is causing all of this noise? Like, And I, I had two setups. I had one at home and one up there. So I was like, you know, do I have a bad sensor? Right. Is there electrical noise? Like, well, what? Is is my camera interfering with it? And so I went over eventually and turned out the lights. And it, you know, didn't. It went to zero, just like it should. No sine wave. Turned on the lights. The sine wave comes back. So I start grabbing, like, some little pin lights. You remember those things that the doctors used to use?
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Those are handy to have around. So oh, yeah, I grab one of those. And it doesn't have the sine wave.
1: Mm-hmm has something to do with your leds or something huh
0: so it has something as exactly it is because i have led lights overhead in the shop yep. and you say well what does three seconds have to do with that we were sampling i don't ah. remember how many times a second but it was aliasing and it, and, and you need the, uh, I wrote, I wrote a, and this is, if we do an advanced class or we do a signal processing class ever, like I saved the data because this is going to be my example. You exactly alias 60 Hertz AC power to a three second sine wave with the sample rate.
1: Amazing.
0: And the fit is, you know, I I grabbed the data and I put it in a Jupyter notebook and made a 60 Hertz and then resampled it and I was like it lines up like exactly that's
1: awesome (laughs) that's so great how funny
0: yeah so Uh. that that was an unpleasant uh afternoon of well okay (laughs) Uh, okay it was actually not that unpleasant it was kind of enjoyable uh, it's just yeah, not what I needed to was. get done that day. <laughs>
1: exactly
0: <laughs> uh, it, It's well, like a discussion I had with one of our former guests about what are you doing? He's like, well, not what I should be doing, but uh looking at what the Fourier transform of various fonts looks like because that seemed interesting.
1: <laughs> that does seem interesting. <laughs> oh, I love it <laughs> so
0: uh but speaking of other miserable afternoon experiments, I think that takes us to this week's. Fun Paper Friday.
1: Yay. Not yay. This is terrible. <laughs> but it felt like something that needed to be read.
0: <laughs> so have you ever heard of the myth they talk about in this paper? Because no, I it, never have, and it my wife hasn't either.
1: It doesn't sound like a myth, though. It sounds like, okay, all right. This is in, <laughs> this is just in the letters of JAMA. Um, <laughs> and I guess that at some point, People have been told not to use electric fans to cool yourself off during a heat wave because you're actually doing more harm than good with that. And And you will raise your body temperature faster.
0: At first, you're like, that's preposterous. Right. (laughs) But then you think about it and you're like, okay, well, let's say it's 90 degrees and 40% humidity. The apparent temperature is higher than the temperature of my skin. Right. So, what happens when you blow hot stuff onto something cooler? It transfers heat energy. So? So, <laughs> you're... if you're blowing air that's hotter than your skin onto your skin, that air should be dumping its heat into you because you're the cooler object.
1: Uh, right. Okay. Cool. Reverse wind chill. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thermodynamics.
1: Uh-huh. But that doesn't take into account all this other stuff that happens because we're living, breathing things, which is that we're also sweating. And if you're evaporating our sweat, that's actually cooling us down.
0: Right. And so which one wins? Or is it a draw?
1: Right. Exactly. Because as you raise the humidity, you're going to be able to evaporate less sweat. And so then that could actually be a problem. So suppose, I mean, it sounds like, Okay, we'll get to why this is ridiculous. So,
0: okay, can we first talk about the sweat rate, though? So they they measure this, but they also, and I love the way they do it. They're like, okay, after you've been in here for 135 minutes, take your clothes off, and we're gonna weigh the difference.
1: Oh, these poor college students. So
0: they say that a healthy 70 year old adult. Can produce 440 grams an hour. Yeah. Of sweat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's 440 milliliters.
1: Yeah, that's a bunch. That's gross.
0: It's a quarter of a two liter.
1: <laughs> <is> super gross. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, that took. I uh, that took me a little while to get over when reading this paper. <laughs>
1: you pour out that amount of water and just sit there and look at it right <laughs>
0: except knowing uh, for people like me it all ends up in my shoes
1: oh <laughs> uh. uh, that's hilarious
0: yeah I'm one of those people has a, a shoe dryer sitting by the front door
1: oh my lord and those little charcoal packs too
0: no, no it let, like, plug-in shoe dryer. Oh,
1: I know. But, I mean, you <laughs> yeah. should have the little charcoal oh. packs, too, is all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> no, your wife and your... Well, no, your dogs probably like it. Never mind.
0: <laughs> so th- they did this experiment, and they're like, well, the only way we're going to find this out is to put a bunch of people in really hot rooms and either give them a fan or don't. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Yeah. And guess what? fans help cool people down no matter what
0: (laughs) right so they give them uh, they're taking their core temperature and their heart rate and they measure the sweat total at the end of the experiment but these poor people have to sit in a room that's up to 108 degrees
1: Uh where they're gradually cranking up the humidity
0: for 135 minutes.
1: <laughs> Sounds terrible.
0: I, that experiment would have to buy a lot of pizza for me to have participated in that when I was in
1: college. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They increase the relative humidity in 15 equal steps. So every seven and a half minutes, you got it cranked up. And it started at 25 and it goes to 95 at 36C and then 20 to 70% at 42C. Which is 108 Fahrenheit. 108. Yeah. 70%. I feel like that's what it is. Like this weekend was 108 degrees with 70% humidity. Unbelievable here. Which is why I wanted to have this paper right <laughs>
0: now. Right. So then they had a. Uh, each temperature was tested with and without an 18 inch fan facing mm-hmm. the participant, one meter from them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after you are already uncomfortable, you're going to have to stare into a fan at three feet <laughs> distance. <laughs> 130
1: minutes, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And, yeah, they, they found that it does do good no matter what the temperature-humidity combination is.
1: I love this so much, and this is why people make fun of academics. Like, the first sentence in the discussion, our prelim- our preliminary study is the first, to our knowledge, to demonstrate that electric fans prevent heat-related elevations in heart rate and core temperature.
0: Duh! <laughs> in healthy young men, up to approximately 80% RH at 36C and 50% RH at 42C.
1: <laughs> Anything outside of that, fans probably don't help. <laughs> like, and then it says, thus, contrary to existing guidance. But they do, they cite the World Health Organization. It says fans and the EPA. It's, uh, what?
0: i have never heard i have not talked to anybody that has heard about this since you sent this to me
1: so the only thing that i could think of but i mean but you lived in pennsylvania it was like okay maybe we never hear that because everyone has you air conditioning is ubiquitous where we live now maybe definitely yeah so it's like maybe when these heat waves hit the northeast like the upper northeast or something or montana where people don't have air conditioners, they say, don't plug in your electric fan. Who is going to listen to that?
0: Right. I mean, I feel like most people have done this as a experimental trial themselves. Correct. I turned the fan on and I feel better.
1: That's the deal. Like, come on, people, right? I don't think I needed this study. Yeah, we didn't need this study. Like, how do I feel? Oh, yeah, much cooler.
0: Well, I will say, you don't know until you know.
1: Yep, and these Excel graphs tell me that I know now.
0: <laughs> no, they uh they say what graphing program these, that's why I never heard of. Uh, oh. let's see. It was in graph pad.
1: Oh, that's right. They did say that, didn't they? Mm-hmm.
0: Though what struck me, and it, it shouldn't have, because everything in biology is nonlinear. Yes. <laughs> but what struck me is like the changing core temperature. It's steady from 20% to 50% RH. Mm-hmm. And after 50%, it skyrockets. Skyrockets,
1: yeah. This is a hockey stick graph for sure.
0: And the same thing with your heart rate, mm-hmm.
1: yep.
0: which got me thinking, like, okay, so the heart rate, actually, hockey sticks a little it, hockey earlier. Hockey sticks about yeah. 38%.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that why we're so tired when it's just hot and humid outside because our heart is the racing? Our
1: heart's pumping. See, now that would have given me something else to, you know work with here because okay over 40
0: percent relative humidity like that's a day that ends in y right now for me
1: yeah well yes (laughs) and you that is true and well you were a volunteer firefighter i mean people talk all the time about how you know it's the the exertion and everything when it's a humid day is what puts more people in the hospital so there you go
0: And it's not negligible. Like from 40% to 50%, your heart rate increases by 10 BPM.
1: I had to read that a couple of times. I was like, 30? Your heart rate at 30? That's not right. I'm like, oh my God, that's an increase. Yeah. That's a ton.
0: That's like jogging.
1: Yes. That's unbelievable. And these people were just sitting in a chair. It's probably because it was 120 minutes in and they're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And they were right. just getting mad, too, so that probably added to it. Uh, yeah, I thought this was very interesting. I mean, it was very interesting that it was done in the first place. <laughs> right,
0: Right, and the results, uh, what I found most interesting in the results wasn't the actual goal.
1: Exactly, yes. With all this other stuff we talked about that they don't mention at all. But this is just a preliminary study, so I'm sure they're going to stick 900 other University of Ottawa students in this in this room, <laughs> right, and follow up on it. Well, probably not. This is from twenty fifteen, so.
0: <laughs> but you know, maybe this will be uh, will be cited some other time, or maybe it could even be used. You know, we have a uh, well, we have heat stress index, which is used for like football teams that are practicing, right? Uh, maybe it can be useful for something like that as well.
1: Yeah, or maybe plug in a fan. You'll cool off, kid. <laughs>
0: Well, Shannon, if folks would like to send us their core temperature readings as the humidity in their house climbs (laughs) higher and higher as the ridge of death sets in in late Uh, July.
1: So true.
0: (laughs) How can they do that?
1: We'll graph those up in GraphPad. Uh, Send us your data. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Um, We've participated in the Slack channel lately, so come on back. The Software Underground, we're on the Don't Panic channel.
0: And until next week, remember, don't panic.
1: It's not an exact science.